And if there's one thing you learn in crisis management, it is that you must begin speaking and talking about what's going on as promptly as you can. Welcome to your personal branding podcast with Bernard Kelvin Clive, your number one career and business podcast in Ghana, bringing you expert interviews and insights into personal branding, personal development, and publishing. Now, here's your host, Bernard Kelvin Clive. Welcome to another edition of your personal branding podcast. And this particular episode, I host one of the renowned expert crisis management, Jim Lukashevsky, America's one of the top visible corporate leaders and go-to person in terms of crisis, in terms of your business organization. is considered a non-profit government, military, private, and public altogether. And my guest today is Jim. Jim, welcome to the podcast show. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Well, let me let me start by defining what a crisis is from my perspective, and I kind of you know, gets us on the same wavelength here. I, I define a crisis as a what I call a people stopping or show stopping, product stopping, reputationally redefining, trust busting event that creates victims and or explosive visibility. And the operative word in this definition is victims. There are, you know, organizations and leadership have lots of problems in running themselves, governments as well. But there are very few real crises going on. But I guarantee you, if it's a crisis and you're producing victims, that is a problem for management and for leadership for sure. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's... I have, I have some very over the years, I've developed some very specific uh, strategies and ideas for responding to these crises, and. It begins with um, essentially what leadership should do in crisis. Um, and what's interesting about this, of course, is I, I tend to review, I get to review many crisis plans of different organizations every year, and rarely do I see a section that tells the bosses what to do, which means that the bosses generally have nothing to do, which means they interfere, interfere with the responses that people in positions of responding you know, have to get done. But but leaders have a real role in crisis, a really important role. And, and, and really, I, 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 first and foremost, I tell leaders that, you know, they, they have their, their, first jo- their first job is to what I call assort, assert rather the moral authority expected of ethical leadership. And the reason I state this this way is because uh, most leaders, most competent leaders get to this point at some time in the response. But the longer it takes them to get there, the more difficulties and problems occur. And um, uh, what often happens when problems, especially crises occur and victims are created, these senior people go into a room somewhere and close the door and start to figure things out by themselves, while the rest of us who are supposed to be responding are waiting you know, outside the door uh, for some instructions on how to proceed. And the devastating part of this behavior is that um, while the bosses are trying to figure things out, um, the organization is saying nothing. And if there's one thing you learn in crisis management, it is that you must begin speaking and talking about what's going on as promptly as you can. If you remain silent, then other people will make it up for you. The news media, the blover, you know, the, the, the bloggers and the bloviators will. Um, your employees will, or that sort of thing, the survivors will. 
and it gets out of control. But the, the thing that happens that's so devastating is that if you remain silent for any period of time, then no matter how well you actually respond, and I have clients who have done extremely well in responding, but because they didn't talk quickly, mm. you know, they they were they were chastised, they were criticized for this, and that was really how their response was was characterized. The fact that they didn't speak right away, nobody even goes back to look if they did a good job, but the fact they didn't talk is a devastating thing. So, leadership has to has to assert from the very beginning um, the atmosphere that um, the response is going to take place in, and that's why I call it so, establishing the, the moral authority and the ethical basis for so, response. So, Jim, before you yeah, proceed, before you, proceed um, you mentioned that the, the most critical and most important thing to do is to respond to the crisis quickly, if not the media and other things will pick it up. And it doesn't matter how well you respond, they said damage might have really been occurred, it might be very difficult. So how do you respond in, in, in terms of immediacy of the, of, of the crisis? If you don't have your facts right, you don't have the resources, how do you respond so that you prevent the media from blundering all that you've done? But it's not so much to prevent the media. It really is to, to, to have an have a in-place and ready um, what I call a grand response strategy. Mm. Um, and it has five parts. Let me just talk quickly about each part. Okay? okay. The first part of crisis response is to stop the production of victims. Whatever causing, whatever is causing the victims to be created, whether it's, you know, whether it's a, a fire, or an explosion, uh, whether it's uh, some, uh, some devastating situation that you're responsible for or, or deeply involved in, stopping the production of victims is the first thing you have to, to plan on doing. The second thing is to begin taking care of the victims immediately. Um, and when you start, when you even these first two steps tend to mitigate. A lot of uh, uh, outside confirmation, uh, um, you know, making up of things and that sort of stuff. The third step is to begin communicating, especially internally, if you have an organization, um, because um, so so many times we, we are so bound in talking to the media that you forget to tell the people who are most directly affected by what's going on, our own employees and those who are related to us in some way or other, and so they don't know what's going on. And what happens is the reporters don't come to you, the leader. They come to the, your employee, somebody they know inside your organization. And, of course, if the employees don't know anything, they'll say, just, well, you know, nobody tells me anything. I don't know what's going on. I'm sure they're taking care of this, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, all of a sudden, that's what your public image is. The, 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 the fourth step in this five-step process is to notify the people who need to be notified. Typically, if you've got a crisis, you need to notify Third parties who you work with, partners, business, you know, others in your, in your organization, public officials, regulatory agencies, those people need to be notified. And then the fifth step in the response strategy is, is the part about dealing with the media, the new media, the old media, the bloviators, the bloggers, and all those kinds of people who opt in. I call them the, the self-anointed, self-appointed who step in. Now, here's the point, though. Here's the point. This all has to be done and started in the first hour. Wow. The first 60 to 120 minutes, you get all this started. And you, the benefit of thinking of it this way, Bernard, is that you know now you've got something to talk about, even though you don't know a lot, because you never do in a crisis. That's what a crisis is. You, things are bad, things are happening, you don't know anything. You can talk about how you're going to respond, what you're going to be doing, what you are doing at this moment. So you have something to communicate about. So that the, the problem for most of us and for most leaders is they don't know what to talk about in those first few seconds, first few minutes, first hour or so. And now with my strategy, 
this is what you start talking from the very beginning because you know what you're going to have to do to get things done. And as you learn more, as you can take better, more action, as you help more victims, you've got more things to talk about. And this is what, this is what deters the media from making things up and, and, and other people in social media to do the same thing. Does this make sense? Yeah, right. So, so getting back to my, my just for a second, the leaders. No, the first thing you have to do is set this moral tone for what's going on. Otherwise, if they if they're angry, if they're whiny, if they're you know they're upset because bad things are happening and they can't control them, well then everybody else in the organization is going to talk this way, and it's going to reflect how the company is in turmoil. The second responsibility of leadership is to again to manage the victim dimension, get in there and start working with the victims, because you know the second place the media goes and and the, and survivors go after they try to talk to you, is they go to look at the survivors and they want to talk to the victims. So we have to play, this is really the essence of my strategy is to recognize, and very few strategies planned this way, is to get in there and be get involved with the victims and help them as quickly as possible. Because each step you take like this that I'm talking about reduces media interest and outsider interest in what you're doing. Because most media is not interested in reporting companies who act well, there isn't reporting on companies who are messing things up. True. Yeah. So um, if you if you go this far, and in fact, this this business of getting thing, getting so much ready in the first hour or two, I I call the the, the, the strategy of the golden hour. Yeah. Um, it's an, it's a brief interesting image to keep in your mind. At the end of World War II, um, a company in the United States invented something called the helicopter. Mm. And uh, they didn't know what to do with it, so they gave some to the American military and said, here, look at these machines. We think they could be useful to you. Um, see what you can do. And the, the United States Army Medical Corps uh, was began experimenting with uh, attaching stretchers to the helicopter rails <laughs> to transport patients. Because one of the lessons from, from that war was that more, more soldiers, wounded soldiers, died in transit to help than who actually died in battle. So, so um, they, they did two things. They, they started experimenting with a helicopter to transfer patients, and then they, they made a big change in how they did battle medicine. They actually, instead of having the hospitals in the rear areas, they brought them up to the battle line. So they had, they had very, very uh, sophisticated surgeries at the battle line. So what happened was the, 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 the soldiers were transported safely in, by helicopter to what they called a mobile army surgical hospital on the battle line. Um, you'd recognize it if you, if, you, if you remember the television show, the American television show MASH, M-A-S-H. That's what MASH stands for, Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. Uh, at the end of the Korean War, 97% of the wounded soldiers who arrived alive at a MASH, no matter how seriously they were wounded, left alive. So, so that's my metaphor for this business of the first hour or two of crisis response. This is where you save your reputation. This is where you, this is where you start getting the job done right away. So you prevent this gap in, in talking and, and the, the criticism that arises because you're not saying anything. Wow. So is this, is this useful? Yeah, so it means that even before the crisis occurs in whatever forms, the company, the leadership must really be prepared and know what to do to respond to similar or, or crisis of that, this nature. Yes, um, and the way you do that is if you, it, the, the, you, 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 it's a, a six-step process really to prepare 
to, to respond to crisis. And it's, it's very quickly. The first step in this preparation process is to, is to examine what, you know, what could go wrong. What are the things you were doing or could be doing um, that you could pre- begin to think, think in terms of them causing a crisis and getting ready? You have to, I call this essentially visibility uh, identification. You have to understand what could make you visible. And you want, there are two kinds of things that make you visible. 95% of the vast majority of things, the bad things that happen to organizations are the result of things they do every day. Whatever their service or whatever their business, or whatever their product is, that's where most crises tend to come from. So, so that's the first place you look. Uh, the second place you look is things that could happen to you. For example, you know, if you transport people uh, in in buses or planes, or you know, sometimes they land well, sometimes they don't. Uh, sometimes there's mechanical problems, things like that. So you you look for these what I call these these non-operational problems as well. And then once you've identified that list of things that could go wrong, then then what you do is you begin to sort through that list and look for the ones that could be the most damaging, the most serious, and those are the ones you begin to plan for. This step I call scenario development, which means essentially, let's say you know you're you're, you're planning for you know um, buses that don't work or that might have an accident. So you you have to sit back and think about essentially, okay, you hypothesize uh, an accident and uh, of some sort. Maybe it's based on real circumstances. Maybe it's based on something you read in the paper. But you, you then sit down and ask yourself with people around you the question, if this happened to our company, what would we do? What would be the first thing we do, the second thing we do, the third thing we do? And this is how your plan emerges. You, know, you have to sit down and in real time think through the scenarios for these various problems. And then those scenarios, those exercises in developing scenarios um, will help you determine you know, who you have to have available to help, whether they work for you already or whether you have to go find them when a crisis occurs. Um, but it's this exercise, this this first step, and thinking through the sequence of events that begins to inform management about what they have to be ready to do you know, when when these bad circumstances happen. And I, I refer to the, you know, I don't, I don't like the word crisis management much. I really like prefer the term readiness. readiness. What are we going to be ready for? Okay, what adversity are we going to be preparing for? And and that's really how it's done. You determine in advance the kinds of things that would be seriously adverse to your organization, create victims, and then you begin preparing on that basis. Does this make sense? Right, right. Um, It's hard. In in a way, it's hard to do because it's time-consuming. And most leaders, frankly, today don't believe they're ever going to have a crisis. So they tend to resist, you know, any kind of preparation because it, it's not going to happen here. Um, and they also tend to believe, especially those who ha- are educated, that, you know, they're really smart anyway. So if it does happen, so what? We can handle it. And, you know, we read the paper every day and watch television every day for companies and organizations who really weren't ready and couldn't handle it. And therefore, there was more suffering than necessary when these things occurred. What, what do we say that in, in a company situation where they've gone on a, into crisis, damage, serious damage, is there any point that we could say this is unrepairable? Um, uh, are you talking? You're talking about the, the the recovery aspects of crisis. Yes. Um, well, I think you know what's interesting about what I'm talking about is the real preparation for recovery begins with the very first steps of what you do. 
Um, and, and so, so and, and frankly, you know, crises happen so explosively that the whole thing is really more about recovery than the crisis itself. It's, it, you know, I'm always, I'm, I'm actually kind of irritated by people who, who complain that you didn't act fast enough, you know, or you didn't communicate fast enough. Those people have never, ever been in a crisis. Because if you've been in a crisis, um, uh, you know that it happens so explosively, there's just no way that you can prevent it. I mean, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So there it goes, boom, so to speak. And you're into recovery almost immediately. So, so in essence, um, I, I mean, I've never been, I've done this for so many years, as you mentioned early on. Uh, I, I really, you know, prevention, the, the, the real preventive techniques, which I'll get to recover in a minute, the real preventive techniques are going through the process I just talked about, identifying things that could happen and taking the steps necessary to prevent them from occurring at all. When we do crisis planning, I mean, if we get, we're planning, say, for a, a factory, and, you know, the factory has a 30-year-old boiler that heats the place and heats uh, steam for working. You know, and, and it's got a 30-year warranty or a 35-year warranty. You know, our recommendation is change the boiler now. Why would you wait another five years for the warranty to run out when it could be one of your greatest vulnerabilities? So why would we plan for a boiler exploding if we could simply replace the boiler? I mean, think of, you know, it's pretty simple, straightforward. But um, so prevention begins at the beginning. The second step in prevention um, from the beginning is what I is, are really good controls, compliance, that is rules and regulations inside the business or organization that prevent bad things from happening, no matter what they are, and bad employee behavior, bad executive decisions, that sort of thing. Those are, those are ways that you prevent crisis from occurring. But once it occurs, then if you go back to this five-step process I talked about um, and start implementing, you know, managing the victims, communicating regularly internally and then externally, um, talking to the people who are indirectly affected, um, and, and taking those steps, you know, what you're going to find is that there's much less interest in the, in the media's part and others if you're doing things correctly. But recovery is a part of planning. So, you know, so basically when you go, when you, when you work through this process I mentioned earlier and uh, in, in getting, in getting ready for a crisis to occur, the majority of your work is going to be in recovery. What are the, what's the first thing we do? What's the second thing we do? What's the third thing we do? What's the fourth thing we do? Those sorts of things. It's very systematic, very systematic to be successful. So can you walk us through um, um and, yes. and what, what, uh, what are uh, the things uh, that we need to avoid? What are the bad things leaders do to get into trouble? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, there are, um, there, you know, it's a funny thing about these sorts of things. That, you know, I have a list for everything because I've been doing this so long. I wow. kind of watch when I, when I train and teach people what to do. But, you know, what, what the, the things that cause management to fail, I've already mentioned the first one, and that's essentially not talking. Mm-hmm. Silence is the most toxic strategy you can choose. Um, and uh, it's toxic because, again, people do not understand why you're, you're not talking. There is actually, I don't care how smart you are, there is no believable explanation for not talking um, when bad things happen as quickly as possible. You just, you know, you can say, well, you know, the police said I couldn't talk, the army said I couldn't talk, uh, the government said I couldn't talk, but this is the work of leadership. You have to recognize that, you know, it's the leader who's going to take the hit on these deals if you remain silent because they deserve it. This, these are, there are lots of tough decisions for leaders to make here, but being silent 
is clearly the wrong decision. Um, the, the second one is what I call stalling. You know, waiting to do things, um, waiting to take action. Um, again, you know, there are more victims created when they're stalling. Um, it's a problem for people um, to, when you think about this uh, to understand again what are those people doing up there when we got people on the ground suffering. So, and also, you know, it, it's stalling is also about blame shifting. You know, looking around for others to blame for why it happened. But if you're the one who looks like the perpetrator, acts like the perpetrator. You know, and, and, and either he's not talking or talks like a perpetrator, that's how you're going to be considered. And mostly it comes from failing to take action promptly. That's why I have that five-step process I talked about earlier. Um, the third thing is denial. Mm. You know, it's this notion that um, a company refuses to accept the fact that something bad has really happened to them. They just say, you know, it's not as bad as it, it seems. You know, you're, you're, you're overblowing this. You're, you're talking about things you don't understand. They're very critical of the media, of the people who are, who are complaining about them, those sorts of things. It's denial. It's, it, it's another form of stalling. It consumes time, you know, and you just look bad in people's minds. The fourth thing, the fourth thing is victim confusion. I call it, and again, I sort of mentioned this earlier, but this is actually, this is when the bosses stand around and say, well, hey, hey, look, we're a good company. We do good things. This is just, this is an isolated incident. You know, it could happen to anybody. It happened to us. We're as much a victim as the people who died on the ground. Well, I don't think so. You know, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're going to be a company when this is over. You're going to be, you know, uh, a, a, a wealthy, important, powerful person probably when this is over, but the victims are not. So, you know, I, I try to caution leaders, you know, to, to, to don't confuse the fact that you feel you're a victim with who the real victims are. Mm. Nobody believes an institution can be victimized. Nobody believes a company can be victimized. They look at what the products do, what the people do, what the organizations do, and, you know, it's the people on the ground who are hurt or don't survive are the real victims here. But it wastes time. That's the whole point. You know, they, they, I've been in, I've been sat in, you know, places in organizations where they argued about this, you know, for half a day while, you know, the thing was smoking, leaking, burning, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, these are bad things. Um, I think um, just just two more. Mm. Uh, one is what I call testosterosis. And that is this, you know, this urge to strike back, to, to hit out at people who are criticizing you, who are complaining about you, who are blaming you. Again, um, this is a waste of time. This is this creates more critics, more people who will be angry with you, and it's harder to keep things um, settled down. Um, and so, so you know, it's these kinds of behaviors um, that really make make for things being really worse. These these seven uh, things. I think the, the worst one of all, though, is my last one, mm -hmm. Bernard. That's what I call whining. Uh, you know, just just woe is me, whining around, just just. Being like a crybaby, really, um, just because they're having a bad day at the office. Um, nobody believes it. Nobody likes it. Nobody wants it. But again, if you look at what I said earlier, the things that, that the manager should be doing, the things that we're doing for response, those are the things, those action items that will help deal with the crisis much more promptly, much more credibly, you know, and, and pr start preserving the reputation going forward. Wrong. Difficult? Yeah. Well, actually, you know, I'm talking a lot about management because, in essence, in crisis, it's not so much what the media does. The media behaves the same way 
actually the world over. They ask the same questions. They make the same assumptions. They actually, in crisis, I mean, the media <laughs> makes up about, you know, 80% of what they report in the very beginning. I mean, if I'm the perpetrator and I don't know what's going on, how can that media know what's going mm-hmm. on? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, uh, but that's, there's nothing I can do about that. Um, uh, what I can, the things I've been talking about are the things that need to be done. So that, you know, so and so my focus is on leadership because these are leadership decisions. You know, let me mention one of the, one of the things that that is so interesting about about managing crisis is, you know, is the victims themselves. There are three kinds of victims in this world, uh, people, animals and living systems. And, you know, if you if you blow up a building somewhere you know, and people are killed or injured, that's one kind of crisis. Um, if you if you like British Petroleum, that you know, had that big oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, well, that's that's like the trifecta of crises: it's people, animals, and the, you know something called the Gulf of Mexico, were all being messed up by that oil that was being poured in uh, by that broken pipe that was 5,000 feet underwater. So you know uh, there are different kinds of crises, but the interesting thing to me is over the years I had become uh, less a communicator and more what I call a management anthropologist, you know, studying how management decides things so that I can help them make the best decisions at the earliest possible time. Um, so, so much of what crisis response is, is really about what leaders and managers allow to have happen or facilitate uh, getting done. Jim, are there any uh, other pointers you like management to know regarding how to manage um, yeah, crisis, any take-home point for them? Yeah, there really is. Um, um, quite often, you know, management, it turns out that management probably has done something that, that helped create this problem, which means, in essence, that management has to, at some point, determine that they need to ask for forgiveness from the people they've injured. And this is hard for leaders. We're sort of like leaders are taught that, you know, um, apologizing and taking responsibility are kind of like sissy functions. Um, you got to be tough. You got to work your way through these things and, you know, not give an inch to anybody. But, um, I mean, one of the biggest issues of leadership in, in crisis is compassion. It is, it is uh, being sensitive and sensible to those who have been injured. Uh, to those who have been killed and to their survivors. And, um, you know, there's one of the hardest parts of leadership is this notion of apologizing for causing problems. And it's something that management just, in every culture I've worked in, I've not worked in every culture, but I've worked in many cultures. It is something that management learns to be resistant to from the very beginning. I have no idea where they learn this stuff. Um, I mean, if you had a, if you had a mother, you would know when you're supposed to apologize, but even having had a mother um, in your life, uh, you know, when you get to be a boss, for some reason, you forget that lesson. And, you know, and so they, 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 they do weak sorts of things. They, they avoid apologizing wherever possible. They, they use alibi. They say, well, this is a, this is a one-off situation. It, you know, it had to happen to somebody. It happened to us. You know, it's probably never going to happen again. You know, it's, it's that so-called isolated incident phrase. Um, anybody who uses that phrase, I know, is guilty of something. Maybe not what they're being accused of at the moment, but they're guilty of something. Um, but but what, what I have to teach leaders is how to apologize. Mm-hmm. And here's what an apology is, okay? It has, it has five 
powerful parts. The first part is admission, because all apologies, an apology begins with admitting that you did something that hurt someone, hurt animals, hurt the environment, did some damage, you know, that was adverse to something, someone in the, in the, in the community or in your, your, your area. So you have to make, you have to say, you know, you did it, or, you know, you're, you come close to that, um, in order to be credible. The second step in an apology is, um, to explain, you know, what actually happened to illustrate to the victims that you know what you did. You knew what the errors were. You knew what the mistakes were. You know, you actually recognized the bad things that happened that caused them to be victims. The third step is the, the sort of the, is the discussion step, the lessons learned step, explaining, you know, what you learned from the circumstance and how your behavior will change in the future as a result of what you learned from hurting these other people. Mm. Uh, the fourth step is a direct request for forgiveness, simply asking that, that people, that you learn your lesson, that you understand that you hurt people, that you're, you're, you're going to make amends. You know, you ask for, you ask for forgiveness. And then the last step is what I call the penance step. Penance, like, you know, in church, uh, where you, you, you're going to pay something, you're going to make people whole again, you're going to help them get their lives back together, that sort of thing. Any step that you leave out of these five steps, and it's not a genuine apology. And it's amazing, you know, what executives will go to to limit their exposure in the apology step, when in reality, you know, we all know when an apology is a fake. If an executive says, hey, you know, if I offended you, if I offended you, then I apologize to you. You know, it's like, what is that? You you probably offended some other people. Why can't you just say I apologize for being so offensive? But when you, you know, it's interesting how people, I actually wrote, I've written several blogs about this business of avoiding apology. But does it make sense, Bernard? Yeah, right. Indeed that. So, Jim, as we round up, uh, what would be your billion-dollar advice to top management on crisis management? Take home one actionable thing they must do now, listening to Jim. Well, if you're asking me the biggest thought, the biggest the biggest concept in crisis management is the vic- understanding that it's the victims that matter. The victims have the power to change your destiny. Uh, they can change what companies make. They can change who leads the company. They can change, even if you know, they can they can force companies and organizations to drastically modify what they do because victims have real power. And if you ignore the victim dimension of crisis, you know, it will come back to haunt you. Uh, it, victims are, um, it's a very unique and powerful state because, you know, being a victim is a terrifying thing. I mean, if you're, if you're an adult in this world these days, you've been victimized by something or someone. And depending on how large your audience is, I sort of, I, I sort of say, you know, for every 25 people listening, uh, one or two of them are being victimized by something as they listen to this broadcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the issue for, for the victims is really, really important. And uh, the reason I began where I began talking about management, uh, the second responsibility is to caring for the victims is because failure to do this leaves that caring to somebody else who is not going to care about you and who you really are and what you, and, you know, and, and, and what you do. So, uh, it's the victim dimension and recognizing it that is the most powerful thing that management, uh, and, and perpetrators need to be con- concerned about. Great. 
All right, Jim, thank you so much for the knowledge shared. Is there anything that you might want the listeners to know? Well, um, uh, I, I have a website, uh, which you can go to. There's lots of tremendous stuff on there that you can download for free. It's www.e911.com, www.e911.com. Um, also, um, uh, my email address, you can read me. I love talking about this stuff, as you can tell. So if yeah. you want to drop me a note, just do it. My ad- email address is J-E-L, like Jim Edward Larry, at E, like emergency, 911.com. J-E-L at E911.com. Be happy to chat with you. I have lots of more materials I can send you, uh, and I would be happy to do that for your listeners and for you. Oh, great, thank you. And listeners, if you think there any question that Jim needed to answer, you can just shoot him an email rightly to him, and Jim will be glad to answer you and help you. You are your cooperation anyway. I will. Thank you. Uh, for more information, just go to www.bkc.name or get my books on Brand's Business Building on Amazon. Just go to Amazon.com and search for Bernard Kelvin Clyde. The best is yours. <laughs>